All right, well, if you will, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 11. Acts 11. You can find that on page 920 in the Red Pew Bible. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 27 through 30. So Acts 11, starting in verse 27. How would you like to know the future? To know what is about to happen, to know things that are about to happen before they take place. Like a lot of people would like to know what's going to happen in the Super Bowl tonight. I really don't care. If you knew the future, would it change the way that you live today? I imagine it probably would. If you knew, for instance, that there was going to be an accident on your normal route to get here this morning, my guess is that you probably would have gone a different way. If you knew that there was going to be a substantial hike in gas prices tomorrow, you'd probably go fill your car up this afternoon. If you knew there was going to be another virus like COVID, you'd probably go and stock up on toilet paper. If, if you know what's coming, you're able to prepare for it. But the matter of fact is that none of us really knows what tomorrow is going to bring. We can anticipate, we can prepare for what we think might happen, but at the end of the day, none of us can actually control that thing. That, the scriptures teach us, is in the hands of God. God's relationship with the future is different than ours. He is not limited by time and space such as we are. As the sovereign Lord, God is in control of his world. He declares what will be from the beginning. That is part of what sets him apart as God. In Isaiah 44, verses 6 through 8, God says of himself, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not. Do not be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. The Bible describes God's knowledge as all-encompassing. He is omniscient. It is part of his perfection as God. Nothing is hidden from the knowledge of God. There are no mights, no maybes. He is not a God who risks. He knows what will be because he declares what will be. As he says in Isaiah 46, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. That is the picture that scripture paints of our sovereign Lord. Now God has chosen to reveal this about himself to us really to comfort us with the knowledge that there is nothing that escapes his grasp. It's because God is so sovereign over the affairs of his creation that we can rest in those promises. Think about that golden chain of salvation that Paul lays out in Romans 8 
where he assures us that the reason we can know that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose is because those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It has always struck me that Paul writes that in the past tense, as if it has already happened, even though he's talking about things that are still coming. Our lives are not controlled by the whims and fancies of fate. No, they rest secure in the hand of our loving Creator and our Father. The author of Ecclesiastes tells us that God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning. Jesus tells us that it is not for us to know all the times and the seasons of what God has appointed, but it is for us to trust and to rely on God in the midst of every season, good and bad. The heart of God is for his people. And it's on this that we must rely on whatever the future brings. In our passage this morning, we get a look at the loving heart of God for his people. Now, there are storms of trouble on the horizon for the church here. But rather than upending the church, what we're going to find as we look at what God has in store is that these storms end up showing his resolve to care for his people in every circumstance. Luke's account of this teaches us to trust God's providence. And it challenges us to consider the way that God has called us to live accordingly. And actually how to serve one another. So with that in place, let's begin by reading our text. It's not a long text, uh, but it is a profound text. So if you would, please stand out of respect from God's word as I read from Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 27 and reading to the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So, the disciples determined everyone according to his own ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Uh, the more I have been studying the book of Acts, the more I have just come to appreciate the structure of this book. I hope that as we've been making our way through the book of Acts, that you have been um, impressed with it as well. It's just a book that flows so well from moment to moment, showing us the hand of God at work in the church to expand God's kingdom into all the world. Now, in the past few weeks, uh, we, as we've been making our way through, really, chapter 11, we have seen how God guided the church through a bit of controversy, revealing his plan to expand the gospel to the world. 
Last week, we saw that plan actually put into action as the church in Antioch was born and as it began to mature under the preaching and the teaching of Saul and Barnabas. Today, we get to see how God used this fledgling church in Antioch to meet the needs of other believers in Judea. And so we see the Gospels coming full circle as God is preparing, uh, is is expanding expanding the the kingdom of Christ to the world, but also as he's caring for his people and their very practical needs that they have as they live their lives out. There's an important lesson for, for us to take from this passage, specifically about how mindful God is for his people. There are two threats on the horizon here. One being this natural disaster, and the other being the actions of a wicked king. Now, we'll look at that next week. But, and we need, to, we need to see these two things together. The main thing I want to show you in both of these uh, passages as we look at this over the next two weeks is that God, first and foremost, is going to triumph over both of these dangers. And in doing so, we are made to consider the love that God has for his people and the way that God actually involves his people in this work with him. So this is actually a very practical passage for us, uh, both what we're looking at today and what we're going to look at next week. Trouble may be coming, but Luke shows us how God prepared and provided for his people even while the world around them just seemed to be absolutely set on fire. So this is an encouraging text, and I hope that it will be encouraging for you in the next two weeks as we look at this as well. That brings us to our main idea this morning, which is simply this. We see that God prepares and provides for his people in the midst of every danger. This is a truth you can take to the bank. God prepares and provides for his people in the midst of every danger. In particular this morning, uh, what I want to do is to hone in on the way that Christ involves his people in this work with him. So I have three points. Uh, the Surprise, surprise. Uh, the first two points here are very doctrinal. We want to establish some things that are very true. And then our third point is going to be very practical. What, how do we actually act on this on, the, on this truth. So, first we're going to look at God's love for his people. Second, we're going to be looking at God's love in his people. And then finally, we're going to be looking at how God's love affects us as we give of ourselves. So, let's go ahead and get into our first point, which is God's love for his people. The disciples of Jesus are called to share in the priorities of Jesus. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, then the first thing that needs to characterize your life is that your heart matches his heart. That is the foundation of what it means to be a follower of Christ. When we become part of the kingdom of Jesus, we forsake old desires that used to rule over us, and we adopt the heart of our king as our own. As we look at our passage this morning, that transformation is what really stands out here. We see the heart of God for his people being displayed and expressed in the hearts of these men and women who were in Antioch towards their brothers and sisters in Judea. And that's really where I want to start with you this morning, exposing you to the heart of God for his people. Now, at this point, it's been about a year since Barnabas went and brought Saul from Tarsus to Antioch to help him care for the church that had just been planted there. 
In that time, in a year, we see that the gospel was flourishing. People were hearing it, they were believing it, and they were turning to the Lord. And as they did so, they were also growing together and maturing in their faith. As such, they were having a real impact on the people around them. People were taking notice. So much notice that they started calling these people Christians because of the way they were modeling their lives after Christ. In those days, as the church was growing and maturing, Luke tells us that there were some prophets who came from Jerusalem. Now he says, come down. The reason he says that is because Jerusalem is a high point in that area. And so anytime you leave Jerusalem, you are going downhill. So he says they came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. That's not a small journey. Uh, Antioch is in where we know as modern day Syria. Uh, Jerusalem is in Judea. This is a, a long trip. And so we're told that these men, these prophets, came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, a prophet, we need to understand, is someone who speaks God's word to people when they are led by the Holy Spirit to do so. The gift of prophecy is, is one that is listed uh, in the spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit um, gave to the church, in the, especially the New Testament. We see that mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12. Um, and although prophecy was instructive, we see that it is distinguished from the gift of teaching, specifically in that a person who had the gift of prophecy was speaking words from the Lord. So typically when we think of a prophecy, we think about someone saying, making a prediction about what's going to happen in the future, right? Uh, at the beginning of the month we had uh, Groundhog Day and everyone's trying to figure out if we're going to have winter or if we're going to have spring, right? We're thinking of something that's foretelling. But really, when we look at prophecy in the Bible, prophecy is deeper than that. Uh, God often used um, prophets. He spoke through the prophets to, especially to instruct his people. The purpose of prophecy really is to call people to faith and obedience. Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 14 that the purpose of prophecy was, was to build the church up into Christ. He says that the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. And that primarily is what I think Luke intends for us to understand that these men were doing. They didn't just come to Antioch talking about things that were going to happen in the future. They came speaking God's word to God's people, building them up in Christ, teaching them what that meant. They had come from Jerusalem to Antioch, and we see that God was using them to build his church up. So if we had been there, we would have found these men ministering alongside Barnabas and Saul, building the church up at Antioch in the instruction of the Lord, encouraging them in their faith. Now, one of those prophets who came to Antioch uh, was a man named Agabus. He's somebody you're going to want to remember because he's going to show up again towards the, book of, the end of the book of Acts. Luke tells us that Agabus received a word from God while he was in the assembly of the church. So the church was gathered much as we are right now. And that as, uh, as, as they were, this word came to Agabus and he foretold by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine over all the world. Now, we know that the true test of a prophet is whether or not their word actually proves to be true. And Luke is quick to explain to us that the famine that Agabus spoke about did in fact take place in the days of the Roman Emperor Claudius, who ruled between 41 and 54 AD. 
Now, from what Luke and other writers tell us about uh, this, the time that, that recorded, uh, we actually are able to trace. This was a famine that actually took place in uh, between 45 and 46 A.D. And we know from the records that are written about it that it affected people all over the Roman Empire. Though, from the reports we have, we know it was particularly bad in Judea. Now, if we go to the Old Testament, uh, droughts and famines were always linked to God's judgment. In Deuteronomy 11, Moses warns the people of Israel to be careful, not to be deceived in going after other gods to worship them. He warns them if they, that if they do this, if they forsake the Lord, then, they will, then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against them, that he would shut up the heavens, and there would not be rain, that the land would not yield food for them. So famines and droughts were always a sign of a broken relationship between God and Israel. They were always an occasion to call people to repentance, a call for people to turn from sin and to turn to God. It's hard not to link this famine to God's judgment, especially given the way that Lucas told us about how the Jews had rejected Jesus, the Son of God. And the way that they were relentlessly pursuing and persecuting those who had trusted in the gospel. But that's not really the focus of Agabus' message to the church. We see that God told the church through Agabus about this famine. Not so much to call this church to repentance, but rather to warn them about what was about to happen. So that they could prepare for what was about to take place. So we see that Agabus' prophecy shows us really two things. First, it emphasizes God's sovereign power. Trouble was coming, and the church needed to be reminded that God is still on his throne. God had a purpose in this. The famine that is about to come is not a lapse in his power. It's not something that was outside of his control. He had not forgotten his people. Rather, this famine, we have to understand, was coming by his appointment. The second thing that Agabus' prophecy shows us is that it shows us that even while God had appointed this to take place, he had not forgotten his people. Agabus' prophecy here was not intended to scare the church. He actually intended this word to comfort them. As disciples of Christ, we have been called to be ambassadors in a world that is still fallen and still broken. Jesus warns us that until he returns to restore all things, there will be trouble in this world. In Matthew 24, he says, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against nation, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So Jesus, by his own confession, tells us that in this world we will have many troubles. He tells us to expect suffering, whether it's directly uh, because of our allegiance with him, or whether it's simply because we live in a world that is touched and broken by sin. He doesn't tell us that to frighten us. He tells us that so that we will not lose heart when we do suffer. He tells us this so that we will not fear. Because we know the tears of God's saints are precious in his sight. God will not waste our suffering any more than he would waste the suffering of Jesus. The heart of God is set on his people. 
Isaiah 61 tells us, The Spirit of God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. God takes suffering and he triumphs over it for his own namesake. And his people are called to trust him in that. Agabus's prophecy shows us God's mindfulness about his people. God warned them about what was to take him be taken place so that they would not be caught by surprise. God did not spare them from the trial, but he did see them through. And in that we see the love of God for his people just being blazed out and displayed here. And that three ways I want to I want to particularly draw your attention to here. First, we see the love of God in the way that he prepared his saints and the way he preserved his saints through this trial. It is not an accident that Luke should tell us how the church in Antioch came to be, only then to turn around and tell us how God sent Agabus with this message to them, telling them about what was going to happen. The famine was not a surprise to God. Long before these men from Cyprus, who had first preached the gospel in Antioch, long before Barnabas or Saul ever entered the city, God was already at work. He already had a purpose and a plan to rescue his people and to preserve them. He was not going to spare them from what was about to happen, but he was going to triumph over this suffering through them. The second way we see God's love for his people in this passage, in this way, is specifically in the way that he emptied them of themselves so that he could then fill them with his mercy and grace. God emptied these believers of themselves and he filled them with his mercy and grace. God has a purpose in allowing us to go through times that try us. It's in times like that that we really realize how weak we are. It's times like that that open our eyes to our need for grace. We can think about Paul. Paul pled, for th- pled three times with the Lord to remove what he, from him what he called a thorn in his flesh, a messenger from Satan. He doesn't describe exactly what that was, but we know it was terrible. And he went to the Lord. This is Paul the Apostle. Paul the man who loves Christ. Coming to Jesus and saying, Lord, please take this away from me. But God did not remove it. Why? Well, Paul tells us. He says that the reason God did not remove this from him was so that he would learn to lean into the sufficiency of God's grace for him. He says that God's answer to him was this, My power is made perfect in your weakness. We learn from Paul it is far better to be filled with the glory of God's grace than it is to be left to our own strength. So Paul says in response to the word he received from the Lord, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
We see God's love in the way that he empties us of ourselves to fill us with his grace and glory. The third way we see God's love for his people from this passage is specifically in the way that God appointed his people to be instruments of grace in the lives of others. There is just something beautiful about the way that God sent Agabus to Antioch, about the way he spoke through him to activate the church there to care for the beleaguered believers in Jerusalem and Judea. Remember, the church in Antioch would have been composed primarily of Gentiles. God used the persecution of the church in Jerusalem to bring the gospel of grace to them. They got to hear the gospel. And then God worked in their hearts to save them. And now we see God using those very same people, those trophies of his grace, to care for the needs of his people in Judea. And in doing so, we see how God is just stacking grace upon grace upon grace to the glory of Christ. Two, three years before this, this would have been unthinkable. And yet, because of the gospel, God was bringing light and life to those in darkness. And he was using that to preserve his and keep his people in the midst of this famine. I think Psalm 23 really comes to mind here, where David says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. I mean, what an amazing display of God's grace and his love. He's literally preparing a table to sustain his people in Judea and Jerusalem in the presence of their enemies. They're having to hide because they're getting drug out of their homes and killed for their faith. And here he is providing them with food at the very hands of those who used to be their enemies as well. All to the glory of Christ. Friends, this is what the gospel does. It reconciles us with God and it reconciles us with each other it gives us confidence that no matter what we face, the love of God will never fail us. After all, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, thus showing us his enduring love, how, Paul asks, will he not with him give us all things which he has promised? Yes, indeed, nothing can separate us from the love of God. God's love is for his people. And that brings us to our second point, which is that God's love is also meant to be in his people. I don't know if you saw the news or not. I know we mentioned it in our prayer time, but last Monday, Turkey and Syria were hit with their deadliest earthquake in 80 years. So as of Friday, when I was working on this sermon, more than 23,000 people had died. And tens of thousands more are injured and homeless. Just to put that in perspective, that is half the population of the city of Sheboygan, gone in the blink of an eye. If you knew that something like that was about to happen here, let me ask you, what, what would you do to get ready? Well, you, you'd make sure you're prepared, right? You'd get your family out of town, maybe. You'd, you'd stock up on the essentials. That would be the prudent thing. Be prepared, right? Well, that is actually not the first thing that the church at Antioch did when they heard about this disaster that was headed their way. When they heard about this famine, Luke says, So the disciples determined 
everyone according to his own ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it by the, to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So the first thought of the church at Antioch, when they heard about this famine and all that was about to take place, was not for their own well-being. It was for the well-being of their brothers and sisters in Judea. I mean, just soak that in for a second. That is amazing. Luke has shown us here the undying love that God has for his people by, by telling us about how God made this known to them. But here we see how that love transforms us as disciples of Christ. Here's where we see God's love in his people. The key word that I want to hone in on here is the word so. So, when they heard about this global famine, when they heard about how severe it was going to be, their first thought was not for themselves, but for the needs of others. Now, I want, you, I want to emphasize that to you because you need to see this for the supernatural thing that it is. This is what it means to have the heart and the mind of Christ. This, this famine was going to affect these believers in Antioch just as it was going to affect those who were in Judea. It was going to have a global impact on people all across the Roman Empire. Actually, uh, one historian talks about how uh, when this took place, Claudius was afraid to go out in public because people were pelting him with crusts of bread because they were complaining about the lack of food. There's something about the way that the Spirit moved in the hearts of these believers so that when they heard the news of what was going to take place, their first thought was not to hoard resources for themselves, but instead they were determined to give each according to what he had to meet the needs of someone else. Jesus once told his disciples that the world would know that we are his disciples because of our love. The greatest commandment, Jesus says, is that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And accordingly, that we are to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. The church in Antioch had a mind and a heart to do just that. They were determined to meet the needs of these brothers and sisters who were already under severe persecution. They saw them as more significant than their own, and they entrusted themselves to God and rushed to meet a need. That is the first way that we see the love of God at work in his people. They loved as he had first loved them. Second, we see the love of God in his people at work in these believers and that they took upon themselves the selfless posture of Christ. They emptied themselves so that they could share the blessing of what God had given to them with others. This is Philippians 2 to a T. Do nothing from selfish ambition or from conceit, we are told. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Have this mind among yourselves, brothers, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who emptied himself. That is the way that Christ has loved us. And that is the way that these believers loved these other believers in Judea. They gave freely, not under compulsion, by anything except for their love. 
The third way that we see the love of God in these brothers and sisters is specifically, I think, in the way they submitted what they gave without any strings attached. Luke says that the disciples in Antioch determined to send relief to the brothers who were living in Judea. They each gave to meet that need, each according to what they had, but then they sent that to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. The church in Antioch didn't loan money to the church in Jerusalem. They did not give it, provided the brothers and sisters met certain conditions. Instead, they humbly submitted this gift into the hands of others in a similar way that we saw the church uh, behaving in Jerusalem after Pentecost. They were satisfied to send their gift with Barnabas and Saul, which I think we have to admit, that's a sacrifice in and of itself. Because Barnabas and Saul for a year have been teaching and preaching in the church, building it up. And now they're content to be separated from these beloved brothers and also to send them with a gift to be distributed as a scene fit there. No strings attached, no report necessary. Take this and use it. By giving in this way, the believers in Antioch really were stepping out in love and in faith, trusting that God was going to use and bless what they were able to give. They were also stepping out in faith, trusting that God was going to meet their needs when this famine struck. They didn't see themselves as stockholders. They weren't seeking to profit off a return or to gain influence. They saw themselves simply as givers, good stewards of the gift of grace that God had given them, seeking nothing more than the blessing of getting to glorify Christ through their own sacrifice. This, my friends, is what it means to love someone more than you love yourself. This is what it means to love and to live in faith. This is what happens when our hearts are so filled and so satisfied in the glory of King Jesus that we can think of nothing better than to glorify Christ in the life of someone else. This is what it means to have the love of God in you. And that brings us to our third point, just to think about some applications. It's, you know, it's really, really tempting to look at a passage like this and to just think of it as a footnote of history. I, I mean, really, like, when you think, though, I think about, when I think about how God actually inspired Luke to record this detail, we think about the order of what's happening here. What I think we see here is that it helps us better understand the effectiveness of God's love. What's more, I think we're supposed to learn from this passage in particular to trust God to provide for our needs and to live according to this example, seeing that God intends for us to show this same sort of love to others. The grace that has been given to us by God is a grace that we are not meant to hoard in ourselves. We, we are not like cups that you seal and then put on a shelf with God's grace that never does anything. No, we're more like a pipe of conduit. That as we are filled up, that grace flows out onto others. That is what we see in the example given to us by the church in Antioch. It applies to more than just money. It applies to the way that we use our time, our jobs, our influence, our homes, our vehicles, our families, our food, and every other blessing we have received. All of those things we need to recognize are good, precious gifts from God. But those things are not ultimate. To paraphrase one pastor, they are blessings which have been given to us by God to use and to steward in such a way that we may show that those blessings are not our treasure. Christ is. 
So as we see the heart of God, as we see the heart of God in the hearts of His people, we're led to question ourselves and how do we put this into practice? So to do that, I have five things I want you to take with you this morning from what we've seen. They're short. First, understand that even when this world is in chaos, even when it seems to be on fire, unredeemable, even when there's danger and suffering and trial on the horizon, God is in control. And He is at work diligently providing for the needs of His people. We will say more about that next week, but we need to recognize the hand of God at work here first. Second, understand that God delights in and is glorified in using His people as the means, as the instruments of His grace in meeting those needs. God could have dropped manna from heaven on the church in Jerusalem. There is nothing that would have prevented Him from doing that. Why didn't He do that, though? Why, why didn't God just miraculously provide for the needs of the church in Jerusalem and in Judea the way He provided for the prophets or with the way He has provided uh, throughout uh, countless uh, things that we see in history. The reason is because God had determined to bring glory to His Son by using the people of His sons, His Son to be the means through which He met that need. God gave to the believers in Antioch and then He made known to them the need of the believers in Jerusalem so that by His grace and by the gospel it might be the love of God might be put on display to the glory of Jesus. I really can't think of a better way for God to have gotten glory in the church over this situation than to have done it this way through His love in His people. A third thing that I want you to take with you this morning from this passage is this. Since God delights in using His people in this way, we must diligently maintain a heart of thankfulness to God. A heart of thankfulness that causes us to be God-like givers. The key to being a cheerful giver is not so much in having a lot to give, but rather it is in having a heart that is so set on the glory of Christ, so full of the love of God, that it brings us joy to think that we can somehow be of service to Him. The fourth thing that I want you to take from this is this. Understand that our need serves a purpose. When you are suffering, there's a purpose. In John 9, Jesus is asked by his disciples about a certain man who was born blind. These disciples say, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? We have a bet to see what you're going to say. Jesus answered them, It was not this, that this man sinned or his parents that he was born blind. But it was so that the works of God might be displayed in Him. When God allows need to come into our lives, when He allows us to go through times of suffering, times that press us and push us, it's not because He dropped the ball. It's not because He delights in causing us suffering. It's because He has a purpose and a plan to bring greater glory through it. It is so that the work of God might be displayed. 
how that works out, we might get to see, but we might also not get to see until we're gathered with Christ in heaven. But when we submit ourselves to God and His goodness and His wisdom, because we know without a shadow of a doubt that He is the lover of our souls, when we submit ourselves to Him and know that He will hold us fast, then He receives the glory and we grow in grace. The final takeaway I want want you to take with you this morning is just a little bit of instruction for how we're called to give. As we look at the example of these believers in Antioch, we can see that faithful and give, faithful giving involves four things. And if you're taking notes, this is four things for you to write down and think about this week. Faithful giving, first, involves sacri- giving sacrificially in love. Second, it gives humbly after the manner of Christ. Third, it gives joyfully, willingly, with a full heart. And fourth, it gives in faith according to the ability of what we have been given. It is so easy, I think, to treat the offertory as the intermission of the service. It it is so easy to just check out, let our minds wander to what's going to happen after the service, and then to just take a breath before someone gets up here and starts talking for 40 minutes. It's, it's not hard to drop a check in the plate. Let me tell you, God is not interested in your check. He doesn't need it. He is interested first and foremost in your heart. He is interested in why you gave what you gave. So before you drop that envelope in the plate, just let me challenge you. Take a second, look deeper. Are you giving sacrificially? Are you giving humbly? Are you giving joyfully? As you give, are you entrusting yourself to God in faith as you give, recognizing that what you're given is a stewardship for you to use according to the glory of God? Are you praying as you place that in the offering that God is going to take that and use it for His kingdom? Brothers and sisters, when it comes to giving, let's not just give. Let's worship. The heart of God is for His people. It is a heart that takes root and springs forth in His people. It's a heart that we have been called to share as we care for one another. May God give us grace to love as He has loved us. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we have... We have seen how you are indeed the sovereign Lord, that you are in control of all things. Father, we've seen that in the way you revealed beforehand what was going to happen to the church. But Father, we also see the glory of Jesus' kingship and the way that he motivated and moved in his people to care for the needs of others. And and Father, this this is so convicting as we think about this because we have received so much. We are all rich. Even if we were to lose everything, we would still be rich because we have Christ. And Father, I just pray this morning that you would give us an eye to see our fullness. And that having seen that fullness, we would desire to have that fullness spill out onto others so that they would get to experience the love that we have been loved with. And that Christ would be so glorified as the lover of our souls. 
Father, I pray that we would live out this week lives in which we are cheerful givers. Whether you call us to, to give of our time or our money or our resources or just to use what's in our, our, what our area of, of expertise or control for the good of someone else. I pray, Father, that we would adopt the mind of Christ and that accordingly that people would see and take notice of the glory of King Jesus. And I pray that this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. <laughs>